And let us pray. O God, the protector of all those who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy, increase and multiply in us your mercy, that with you as our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal, that we lose not the things eternal. Grant this, Heavenly Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, it is, it's, it is good to be back. So I, I guess it's been three Sundays since I've been here. So I wanted to at least uh, say thank you to those who taught uh, in my absence and for staying, for leading, and, um, and you all coming and supporting still and all that. And we have, we've, we've just been, we've had blessings upon blessings. So at uh, first week of May when we weren't here, we were with the Kunks down in Mississippi and... Uh, and I, and I think you are all aware of that, but um, the church that Miranda and Dan got married in is the is, is uh, Holy Trinity, which my friend who mentored me is the pastor there. So to get to to get to be with him as well as the Kunks, it was just like I don't know more than a double blessing. It was something else. That was a lot of fun, and um, what a treasured time we had. And then we no more than got back here than we left again, and and, and arrived in. Uh, in Rwanda, and for our frame of reference and distance, sorta and sorta population places, um, when you land in Kigali, let's say that's Pittsburgh, and then instead of having decent roads, it only takes two and a half hours from Pittsburgh to Parkersburg. It's really like that kind of distance, but it takes like six hours by car, or you fly in thirty minutes. And I think that would be about the same if we flew to Pittsburgh from here. I think it'd be about thirty minutes. So we. The places we are and how you get there, you got to come into uh, to Kigali, then you come down to Kamembe and Chiangugu, and then it's below that, and it's kind of like going to Ravenswood from there, but it's it's worse than it's not that doesn't do it justice because Ravenswood is a town, it even has a McDonald's and a Taco Bell. This is really this is like Sandyville, and that does nothing for any of you probably. But there's a, you know those green sign unincorporated signs, and you're like we call this a town, but there's nothing here. That's what Gashonga is like. So, and, and then from there, we got to visit some places that are way out. So it was very interesting. But as soon as we landed into Kigali, uh, the hotel we were staying at the very first night, the manager, who I did know uh, from my trip there before, uh, he said that Bishop Nathan, who is the bishop of Chiangugu Diocese, who, and he's the one who ordained me at Quigg's Church in Roanoke in 2012, said, Bishop Nathan is staying here at the hotel. He's here tonight. So we messaged him and then had breakfast with him and his wife the next morning. And uh, so we, we were then greeted as we entered the country and then taken care of the entire time. And as far as being worried about whatever, you just didn't have to worry about anything because somebody's going to help you because uh, that's, like what, that's what they're there for. So it was just a delightful time. And, and of course, the, the main piece of the trip comes... In that, that's not not up here in Kigali, not the Pittsburgh of it. It's not the Parkersburg of it, but it's down in this no-name place, Goshonga, where the sister church is. Well, pa- Pastor Ephraim would have been my herald. Uh, the a heralder is the guy that's going to run before the the one coming and let him know somebody's coming. Well, believe me, I don't. I think all of Goshonga knew that uh, the white people were coming. <laughs> 
And when, when, and when you're in Kigali or when you're in Kamembe, uh, Changugu, you're not the only white people you see. Uh, you may be one of very few, uh, but then you leave that place and go further. It's really, I think it's southwest. Uh, and really, uh, that's the place that last time I was there that Bishop Nathan said, Jim's been down there where they've never, never seen a white man. And I thought he was joking, but I don't think he was joking. Once you, once you experience that some more, you're like, okay, this is different. And we are the, like the only ones around anywhere. But that became our home, and, and they became our, our family, uh, and it was like immediately. But the, the people were excited that uh, we had participated with them. And, and to, to, to set this so that we understand, we, our church here, gave a little money as we could as they were building a building. And when I was there three years ago, which is about this time, I think we went June, July, um, so it was basically three years ago, they were meeting in a storefront, and then after church, we walked to this piece of ground. And they had bought the ground and had cleared the ground. And I took pictures of the church on that piece of ground. Well, then since then, that's where this church has been built. And then um, and we, I would update as I could, and I didn't do a good enough job of updating you, but I would get pictures, and, I would, and they've been in our prayers consistently. And then there was opportunity to buy the land behind the church for a house, for a pastor's house. And that would be a typical kind of way churches go. That, uh, and we, we would have manses or, or uh, parsonages here. That's kind of how they operate there, and it's usually right near the church. Well, they had somebody who was willing to pay for a house, but they uh, needed to buy the land. And we, you all, uh, helped buy the land for this house. Um, it was more than help. You, you bought the land. Um, and then, I don't know where that other money came from, but then they were able to build this house. And it's it a very nice house. It's a very nice church structure. In March of this year, um, the Rwandan government passed some sort of regulation to um, they wanted they wanted to have buildings. If you're if you're claiming to be a church, your building must meet at least ten criteria. So they they don't want these buildings to be blowing over, or they don't want you to meet in a rented house. They wanted to have concrete floors and. It needs to have, I don't know, evidently lightning rods, and it needs to have drain uh, tanks so that when it rains, you have some place to capture your water and so on. So lots of churches have been shut down. And in, out of our Gashonga Parish, they have planted seven churches, which are all shut down at this moment, and they would meet in homes. Um, and we got to visit with some of those people, and we'll tell you more about that as time goes by. But all those places are shut down. And our church of Gashonga would not have survived this government, uh, whatever, interference, if it weren't for uh, our generosity, as well as, as well as some other folks, in order to help them get a building. So if you could imagine what a building does in the area, that's, it's huge anyway. And my mom and dad uh, met, and I don't know when that was, that was... Um, they were married in 1950, I think, if I got that right. So they met, met before that. And at, and at that time, when they met, they met, it was, it was up near Sandy, it was, it was up, the, up the holler uh, at Metadale Baptist Church, which is near Sandyville, that place that has no, no reference to anything here. Um, but the church building meant a lot for an area because that became your place for entertainment, it was your place for gathering. 
Well, that's, this is what's happening over there. When you have a solid and be, decent building that's going to withstand rains and wind and uh, occasional earthquakes and what have you, then you've got a place that you can actually gather people. And so you can gather them for the kind of entertainment and social thing of the, of the community. It's the center of the community in that respect. And, of course, then they're also preaching the word. So it's, it's, that piece is huge. But then they realized that if we hadn't participated with them, they, wouldn't, they, they just wouldn't be in church at all. They, they, too, would be closed. So they are very, very grateful for you all. And by us representing, then they were very grateful for us coming. And Ephraim being the herald, like I say, everybody knew we were coming, and we were greeted and welcomed the entire time. It was, it, it was really interesting. But... And like I say, I don't, I don't think you could have been in town and not known we were coming. In fact, we had what was the equivalent of the mayor of the area come to our, the pastor's house while we were there to visit with us. Uh, her and a chief of police they had. So a couple of government officials came to visit while you were there. And, and the bishop, as he visited us while we were there, he said, Oh, Jim's a very important person if the government officials came to see him. I said, Well, now I know I'm special because the bishop came to visit while I was here. <laughs> So we were, we've been welcomed, we've been loved on, and, I, and I'm interested, it, I've been interested to see how much what we learned there applies in this lesson that we have for us today. But as Ephraim was the herald for me and telling people we were coming, of course, that's what John, ba- John the Baptist's role is, and he's the heralder for King Jesus. And of course, in times of kings and what have you, there would be a heralder that would go out and blow his horn and let everybody know that the king is coming, the king's about to arrive. Well, that's what John the Baptist's role is. And so, like Isaiah and like Jeremiah, he was called by God to proclaim the word of God, to proclaim the good news and, and to be the herald for Jesus. We're, we're going to see initially... Um, how the the setting for this story unfolds in dark silence. So we begin with verse 1. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of whatever that is, Etura, uh, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, now those are those to that point to the beginning of two. The, this is talking. That's a whole list of civil names and civil government authority here. And of course, Luke, Doctor Luke, is uh, he's he's into details, which has been very good for us to help us understand this 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 unfolding story and have it into a time frame that we can actually understand. So. According to when these people were fulfilling these roles, this means that John started his ministry from about 27 to 29 uh, A.D. But the list of names doesn't only tie the story to the calendar. This list of names gives us kind of the backdrop under which or in front of which this story unfolds. And so... I say it's dark silence. When this in this list of civil leaders, um, you, you get you get five civil leaders and two religious leaders, and they all point to a wicked evilness and darkness that's going on. 
So it's been dark in Bethlehem, both religiously and politically. Um, this, when we get to the um, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, which you know, you're like, well, I thought we just had one. Well, to understand that, that's, it began with Annas, and, it, and he ruled from, uh, or he was the, fulfilled the high priestly role from 6 to 15 AD. And then he was followed by four of his sons, and then his son-in-law, who is Caiaphas. So this, this too, is a bit like the civil list, where it shows you that there's been this long line of uh, nepotism, and kind of a dark and evil reign and rule. And it's, it's a, a dark concentration of power. And as far as silence goes, um, we haven't heard anything much. So we visited that when we heard the word of the Lord coming to Zechariah, which was kind of the inbreaking of God's word after 400 years of silence, and then, and then, to, uh, and then to Mary and to Joseph and so on. So we're to this, to this point... Um, you know these these um, John the Baptist, as well as Jesus, we don't know anything about their childhood. So about thirty years have passed, and there's been that's kind of silent. Now the only thing we know about Jesus' childhood is in this previous passage, which we uh, skipped, and that's where they the the boy Jesus in the temple, and they as the caravans going, they lose him, forget him, and have to come back and get him. That that whole that that's just that piece of that story I find very humorous. Oops, where's the boy? Well, okay, we've been at it for three days. Let's turn around and go get him. Um, I also found the, hum- the, the, the uh, I found humor in the calling of Samuel and him going to Eli, and it makes it's, I'm reminded of trying to put kids to bed. You're like, just go, just go lay down, leave it alone. Um, so the the Lord has spoken to some individuals, but we don't know of their of of John's growing up years. We don't know of Jesus's growing up years. But this silence is broken, where at the end of 2, it says, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So, John's dressed in prophet garb, uh, out hanging out in the wilderness, eating uh, locusts and, and honey, and dressed in uh, camel's hair and, and uh, such stuff. And the word of the Lord comes to him, and then he goes about preaching. So, we, we see that the setting is in dark silence, and then the word of God comes, and the, the herald preaches. So in verse 3 it says, And he went into all the region and around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the herald's going to prepare the way for the coming king by preaching this message about repenting of sins. And baptism was applied as a result of repentance. And to, to read this, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, it can appear that there was a baptism um, that was the cause, and then repentance came. But I don't think that's, the, that's not consistent with everything I tell you all the time from other places in the Bible. But... It's also not consistent with what was meant here and understood here. There's that Jewish um, historian, Josephus, and he wrote about this John proclaiming this baptism of repentance. 
And what he was calling people to was a righteous life so that they would repent of their sins, live in the way of the Lord, and, and um, honor the Lord with their righteous life. And then he, he continues, and this is a quote from Josephus. He says in, in, it says, in his view, meaning his being John's, in John's view, this, this, meaning to lead a righteous life, was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be accepted, uh, acceptable to God. They must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they committed, but as a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already thoroughly cleansed by right behavior. Well, this is how we understand baptism. So we don't understand that baptism saves you. We don't understand that baptism regenerates you. What we understand is baptism is a response and a work of God by His grace in you. It's a means of grace by something that's already happened or it, and, and because we're covenantal, it could be as a child, in a child's case, that it's going to happen in the future. That it would be a sign that you are part of God's people. And so this is going on here, and it was understood here that there becomes a repentance and a turning over to the Lord and a renewal of your soul, and then an outward sign of this baptism. So John, being filled with the Holy Spirit, he was filled from the, his mother's womb. He's still filled with the Holy Spirit and preaching. His preaching then had power, and many, many people came to him, heard his message, heard this gospel, and then repented of their sins because they were convicted of their sins. And then they lived according to the word of God. It is the spirit of God, according to John 3, that works in, a, in conjunction with the preaching of God's word to renew the spirit. And it's the spirit of God that leads one to repentance. And to, just to you know, hammer on this a little more. Without the Spirit's leading, you would not repent. And without repentance, you would not be saved. Repentance is a result of being born again. And it's a result of God's work in your life. The two are closely linked. It's the you know, two sides of the same coin kind of issue. Repentance is... Also, it's not a one-time thing, but it becomes a way of life. Life becomes continual repenting and believing. There's this thing of waking up to your sin because the Holy Spirit brings you to life. And there's a, this initial repentance and believing, but then it becomes kind of a continual way of life. What happens if someone doesn't repent? What if there is no sign of repentance? Well, uh, perhaps there are some who claim to be believers, and I think this—I think this is speaking in the context in which this story is. I think this is true then, but I think it's very true for us now. That there are some who would claim to be believers, but they don't seem to be repentant at all. Their lives simply have not changed. We hear sometimes of of like mass murderer kind of people who were members of churches and gave testimonies and what have you. They're, so it's, they seem like, on the surface, like they're Christians. But then something pops and, and then they go murder a bunch of people. 
You're like, well, were they really believers? And I'm thinking, no, they probably weren't. I think there's a caution that goes in, that needs to be heard in this passage about repentance. Because there can be a belief that this repentance creates the, the opportunity for grace to work in your life. And because I say it's a two-sided coin, that, that can be answered as yes. The reality, though, is if God is not at work in you, you would not repent. So I think a general gospel call can go out, does go out, and the hearer hears this message and by his own efforts kind of comes to repentance. He, he hears the message from the preacher saying, you need to repent and believe. And so he conjures up, I'm sorry for this list of things, and, and, but, but then his life never really seems to be any different. I think that's a response to a false gospel. When one responds rightly to the leading of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit has convicted one of their sin, then as time goes by, that real relationship is revealed in the life of the believer because of the repentant spirit in which they live life. In the beginning, as we repent, we don't only repent of our overt sins, though we do, but we also, and we do this, we have our confession uh, of sin time every time we meet. And so, yes, we repent of our open and, and recognized sin, but we, all, we also repent, and I think this is true for believers everywhere. If, you're really believed, if you really believe and then you're in the Word and you get a glimpse of the holiness of God, when it comes to repentance, we repent of our unbelief. We repent of our laziness. We repent of our lack of joy. We repent of our unhealthy negative attitudes and so on. It just, we repent of our self-centeredness. We have long lists of things to repent of. And, you know, we're going to come back next week and we have a long list again and again. But this is why we, th- we think it's pretty important that the gospel be preached and preached rightly. Because when the gospel is preached rightly, man is put in his position before a holy God in a way that he understands it, in a way that... He- leads him to repentance. And, and again, this, is, this is week after week, week, after week, after week, after week. This is what we do. It's what you do. You come and you repent and you believe. You repent and you believe. And you, the Lord opens up more and more to you of his word. And you repent of your disbelief and you believe. You're stepping into this. So it, we sometimes get hung up so much on the concept of salvation Repentance is important for salvation, but repentance is vital for your spiritual life. It's for repentance is vital for your spiritual health. So in order to lead a balanced life and a life that's coming closer to the Lord, repentance is key. At the preaching of this, as these people were coming, Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled where he said, as it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill will be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, 
and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Well, given where we've been, I can. This brings this passage to life in that if you're going to straighten up the roads, if you're going to level up the ground, once we got in the air and flew back from, uh, you know, that the the two towns say from Parkersburg back to uh, Pittsburgh area, and you get to see the lay of the land that we'd been kind of. Uh, everywhere you go, there's steps and it's a hill. And you're either going down it or you're going up it. And then you just like from the air on the, where you can really actually see, you're like, how many flat spots can you see? You can hardly see any flat spots. So I, this, this concept that you know, kings, so a king's visiting the town and you would go out and make the road wider. So it's a broad and, and inviting, smooth, you'd fill in these rough places. And Lord have mercy, they have some rough places over there. I said, I think that the, the country could do well with another road grader. Now, I think that would make two for them or something. You're like, if you just ran a road grader over here, at least then maybe you could go. Some of these places, you're, you have to ease so much because you're really going into ditches because it's at the end of rainy season, and it's washed out these great big ruts in, in, uh, in the road. And I'm familiar with ruts. I'm familiar with muddy roads. These are things like I've never seen before. And you're thinking, there is no way we're going to go down here. Oh, yeah, you are. And then somehow you're going to turn around sometime and come back. And we've made it everywhere. Amazed. Thinking of smoothing out the road so that it's, it, it's simply smooth. Leveling out the hills and the valleys so that it's a like it's a super highway. We get back here, we get on the interstate, and you're like, wow, the, this is fantastic. That's what this kind of road construction that Isaiah... Isaiah's got a big vision in mind. It's not a small vision. And it's not just at the beginning of the city. He's talking about in this mountainous terrain that the, the hills will be brought low and the valleys will be brought up so that it becomes smooth. Okay, in my head, from the pictures I've seen, uh, what, I've, what I've witnessed over the last couple of weeks, I'm like, okay, this is how big of a, a, and significant this kind of road project that Isaiah is talking about is. That's, he's talking about it being big. But this this highway building, this road project, is this road that John's building, and it's a road of repentance. And so the repentance is coming and preparing the way for the king, Jesus, to come because of the preaching of this wide road of repentance, this smooth road of repentance. Well, what these people who John's yelling at and preaching to what their hearts needed is the same thing that our hearts need. Our hearts need this road construction. It's, it's when we turn our hearts to the Lord is, is this kind of what this highway of repentance looks like. So repentance, if we're getting this imagery, repentance is paving the way for God's presence. That I, I said that, but this is, that I'm saying it again in just a slightly different way, and it's helping me in my head that the, the king is coming and we're wanting to pave a way. But it's through repentance that the way to the Lord, the presence of the Lord, is uh, able to become to be able to be experienced in fuller fashion. The presence of the Lord is traveling the road of repentance. And we see at the at the the very uh, end of that of that passage in, in verse six it says, "And all all flesh shall see the salvation of God." Well, this is why that gospel needs to be preached and preached rightly is so that there's true repentance, so that people's lives look differently 
would repentance should simply be a way of life, but if that's marking your life, your marked would be your life would be marked by humility. Could you say that about your heart? Would you say your heart is marked by humility? And then almost forget about what you say. What would your neighbor say? What would your co-worker say? Would they recognize that your heart is marked by humility? I think that's what this would bring us to. And I think if the church overall, corporately, were a repentant bunch of people making way for the presence of the Lord, then as the church does this, all church being the whole believing people of God, then I think our unbelieving neighbors would recognize something is different. And they would be attracted to this kind of presence that the Lord brings into this church. So, the more that we want the presence of God, the more we should repent. There, there are many ways that Christians want to conjure up uh, a closeness with God. But I think this is a, a hallmark passage that when you say, if you want more presence of God, how would you get it? What's the key? What's the trick? Mr. Church Planter, what do you do? John says you repent. So if, if, if you want more presence of the Lord, it's marked by our repentance. We sing that this song of come ye sinners poor and needy. And one of the verses it says, come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance every grace that brings you nigh. This song, when we sing it, is saying, you want more of God? It's out of true belief and true repentance. And then his presence will become more full in your life. I think what we're seeing in this passage and what we have experienced, uh, what we can see in our own time, is that one could claim repentance, one could claim professions of faith, One could claim church attendance, and then one could claim good conservative positions so that everybody knows they're Christian. But all of those things together may not really show us who is a believer. They may not be proving true faith. John knew this. So John, as as we preach, one of the things we're looking for is an authentic faith. So John's looking for authentic faith. To understand that he's paving the way for the Lord's presence, and, and it's in that kind of great big way. It's not going out in Rwanda where we visit. They, they sweep this, the, the uh, driveway. They sweep the road banks. The, the driveway is not like our, our driveway. is concrete here, and I, yes, I blow it. There's is dirt, and they still sweep it. That's, that's kind of preparing the way of the Lord in my head. But no, it's, it's taking that kind of concept, but then making the superhighway out of it is what he's already explaining. And so then he's preaching this, and people are coming. So look, so look what John says when the people come. So people responding to his message. I pray that more people would come and respond to the message of God that we preach. But if they did, I think I would use a bit of a different tactic if they're here in front of me. But listen to what he says. In 7 he says, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, they're responding to his message, so they came out 
to be re- to be baptized. And he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Jeez, John, they responded to your message. They're ready to be baptized. But then he continues really yelling at them, and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Like, wow, John, what a message. What a warm and fuzzy gospel message John's preaching here. I'm surprised more didn't come. What's with that? Well, he knew that some respond to this message of the gospel with wrong motives. So John uses this end times imagery or eschatology language, eschatological language, to say there's going to be a judgment and it will be very harsh. So listen and listen well. Which this tells us also that final judgment teaching has a place in the presentation of the gospel. You know, lots of us have heard things like we don't want to talk about hell because, and truly, true salvation is something far more than just scaring people out of hell. And I agree with that. But the teaching on hell is certainly a piece of the true gospel. We need to let people know what they are being faced with. But he calls them this brood of vipers. What is that? And we'll see that repeated as Jesus yells at the Pharisees and he calls them brood of vipers. But in this case, he's saying, who told you to come? Well, this is, so this, if there's a, if there's a brush fire and we're at the edge of the field, it could be that there'd be bunches of snakes coming out of the field as well as all kinds of other animals. But the snakes are out, out, out trying to outrun the fire so they don't get burned up. That's the kind of imagery he's painting here. But who told you? Who told you to outrun this fire that's coming? What, what is it here? He knows that they want to escape this final judgment. They're looking for fire insurance. Well, we, we can relate to this. People want fire insurance. They want to escape that fiery judgment. But it's not... That's why he also has to encourage them to live lives that are in keeping with true repentance. Because it's not just escaping this fiery judgment. Then, then these other people got some other problems. I guess or maybe it's the same people. He says, and don't begin to rely on your heritage. Because you are, in your lineage, you have Abraham and you're claiming we're sons of Abraham. Don't rust on that, he's saying. I think today we find many people still relying on their family heritage. And I think when you ask some people, are you a Christian? I did a I did a teach I told Don just before we started that about all I could do is teach the Bible and then Ephraim kind of had to apply it. I don't know their plight. I don't understand what's going on. Heck, I can barely apply Scripture sometimes in our lives, let alone going to a different culture. I don't know what to do with it. And one of the concepts was uh, I, I taught on the the healing of the paralytic and the friends and bringing your friends to to, to know Jesus. And I said, I think it was me that I said, do any of you know people who don't know Jesus? And like hardly anybody, hardly anybody could say, yes, I know people who don't need Jesus. And Ephraim's in the middle of expounding on a point. That's some, some, 
at the cathedral, we had a young man who was not a preacher who was translating for me. And we talk about Bible translations and they were word for word and then thought by thought. At the cathedral, that young man was more like word for word. He was very concerned to get it right. And then when we went down to Gishonga with Ephraim, it's kind of thought by thought, sort of. And then he, he, he understands, and he's a preacher. So when he understands where you're going, who knows what he does? And so he goes for a while, and he'll come back, and he'll say, okay. You know, like, go ahead. <laughs> you know, All right, let's go. So I, I, he's talking to them in their language, and I said to him, and then, and then he turns and tells me, it was him who asked, who knows? And, and we saw very few hands. Like, I don't know. I was going to say three. So two or three hands. And there was, how many people were there that day? So you got 75 people in the room and two people, and that, that was him who asked, so it wasn't a matter of his translation. He then turns to me and says to me in English, I'm asking if they, who knows people who are not Christian. And out of that, only like two people raised their hand. And I said to him, perhaps we need to teach how to ask the questions. How do you understand? How do you ask your neighbor if they're a Christian? Well, here today, if we said to our neighbor, are you a Christian? I think a lot of the neighbors would say, my grandma and my parents and my, they'd start this list of people who are in their lineage and how their, their family has been this faithful members of whatever, whatever church for generations. And of course, we'd want to follow that up and say, but are you a Christian? Because we want to know, because we don't want them to think that because grandma, Betty, was a good believer and prayed for everybody, that you're somehow in. John didn't want his people to think they were in because they were actually physically related to Abraham, which is better than Betty. They got it pretty good, but he's yelling at them and saying, don't rely on that. Don't rely on that. And then, and then this concept of this brood of vipers and people coming and responding. I think a lot of people respond to a false gospel, and they respond genuinely or sincerely because there's pressure and things going on around them, and they understand they want to miss hell. Because somebody's trying to scare them out of hell. And you can su- succeed at that at the, door, at the doorstep. When you've described hell well and what position sin has before a holy God, and then you say, would you like to be saved from that? I, I think it's the equivalent of the shirt collar grabber. And if you said, do you know then today where you're going to spend eternity you might say, sure, yes, please, I want to escape that. Well, being scared out of hell and responding in a kind of a can, okay, then repeat after me and say this prayer. And then we walk away from the door and we check it on our list. Now, I'm, I'm all about being evangelical and telling your, telling your friends and your neighbors and those who do not believe about Jesus. I just think it needs to be a, be, be, to be a bigger picture than scaring them out of hell. And I think you can add some notches on your belt because you've scared however many people out of hell, but they may be responding to a false gospel, and therefore they're really not converted. And I, my fear is, we all, well, my fear is Gashonga is a similar deal, but we all have neighbors who think they're Christian because they've responded one time to a very same similar situation to what I just described, and so they think they're Christian. They think they're going to escape the fiery judgment. They think they got their fire insurance. But according to what John's saying, if their lives do not show a sign of repentance, they need to do that. So he's disgusted with these people and their false motives. To say, you brood of vipers, is not a friendly term. And so he's yelling at them. But 
you got to see this, that this prophet John is yelling because he loves the people. And this, and this whole concept where you can't tell people that they might go to hell because if you really love them, you're going to tell them how much God loves them. Yes, that's part of the story. That if you do not respond to God's love, if you don't hear of his love, you will perish. So John, being upset about their false motives, and you, you, get, you know, get it right. If you think I'm a little excited, what would John have been like here after he's in the midst of calling them the brood of vipers? I'm tired of your false motives. I want to see you lead a life that's keeping with true repentance. What does that look like? John does bring application. Verse 10. So then the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. We know Jesus also later in the Sermon on the Mount says that you will know my people by their love. You will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Well, true belief and true repentance will produce fruit. First, it produces a fruit of character, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's out of that character uh, fruit, then it produces a fruit of action. That song that we do know, that people will know you, they're going to know we're Christians by our love. To describe a life in keeping with repentance... He describes what we do with our stuff. He, he uses stuff and money. What do you do with your stuff? What do you do with your tunic? What do you do with your coat? What do you do with your food? What do you do with your stuff? And then he addresses the money. What do you do with your money? Love, in, in, order, to, in order to help us generalize what's being taught here, I would say that love looks like generosity in the Christian faith. If those who follow Jesus will be known by their love, what does love look like? Well, I think love looks like generosity. So I have to ask us then, how generous are you? How generous are you with your time? How generous are you with your possessions, with your house, with your vehicles, with your money? Do you share those things when you have opportunity? Do you look for opportunities to share those things? Do you enjoy giving? Do you enjoy giving to the church? Do you enjoy giving to your family? Do you enjoy giving to those around you, to those who need, um, who, who are in need? Do you enjoy that? So I, I, th- I think a mark of the believer is going to be a generous heart. And we too often want to hold on to what we have, but we, the, the Lord is telling us we need to be letting go. And he tells us if we let go, that somehow this abundance still will come. And I've heard it said that you can't outgive God. And I believe that. Um, and again, from our trip, the, that concept of generosity is what we've seen for uh, the last two weeks, or wh- whatever it's been, since, since, the, uh, since we landed in country. We just seen, have seen generosity and generosity upon generosity. And 
to go to our sister church, that's going to a people who have nothing. But then from there, we went to these church plants, or, which are to people who have less than the people in the church, in our, in our sister church. And I can't describe this accurately. Uh, maybe Becky will have a video or something we'll show you later. about. So you start from this place, which is right near nowhere, and then you get in this vehicle and you go like forever, maybe like eight miles to like further into nowhere. And you've seen starting, people are finally becoming sparse. There are people absolutely everywhere. People are finally becoming sparse, and then you finally come up some, you know, another hill that's very treacherous, and you get up on top of this hill, and boom, here's a little community. And in this little community is this house that's being rented by our church, or by the Anglican church, and now the diocese. And this church planter slash evangelist lives in this, in a room in this house. Now, this house is about a, as big, I don't, it's not as big as some of our houses have rooms. We have a lot of small rooms in our old house. I think maybe the entire house might be about as big as our dining room. And in this room that this evangelist lives in, who's paid almost $40 a month, and he lives in this thing that's, uh, I have closets. I, maybe not in this house, but I've had closets that are far bigger than this room. And that's what he lives in. And then you've come to see him. And so they're generous people. So what, what do you do when you know the white man's going to get sick if you give him water? You give him Fanta, of course. Of course, it's hot Fanta because I don't think they have ice in the country. Again, this, ty- this trip was like last trip. The only place I saw ice was in a fancy uh, restaurant's urinal. Other than that, you really don't deal with ice. And, but how does Fanta get on this mountain out here in the middle of nowhere? Probably on the back of a bicycle. How do these people collect it to buy it? I don't know. And if you bought such a prized possession, would you really just give it away? And that answer is yes. And they give freely of the Fanta and then of their locally grown fruit. And though we just left the, the table to get here, we eat. And like, you know, I'm the only person I looked that, that I saw that looked like me. And like we need to eat. But what they do is they, they provide hospitality and generosity. And they're so grateful that you would come to see them that they want to give themselves to you. How do you do that? This, this is how we do it. So you're like, okay, we're going to drink more Fanta and we're going to eat more of this fruit. From there we went to another place and it's kind of the same story. And though you just left this place, you go to this next place and you're going to eat the, the, this fruit. I, we were thoroughly humbled that people would give of themselves they, we cook, they cook for us in this house on a wood fire. Things began around 5 in the morning or something. Everything starts clattering around, and they're doing stuff outside to get things prepared. They gave of themselves in a huge way. So I told them that we came to tell them how much Jesus loved them. Uh, and, and, you know, that was really the point. But in the process, they showed us how much Jesus loves us. So I don't know, I don't know what good we did by going. But we were fed and blessed because they gave themselves away. These people who have nothing. We, we give of ourselves, and we give out, give out of our plenty. That's true of all of us. The, the, the poor in our state here would be considered way wealthy compared to the people we saw. But those people, they give, by themse- they give of themselves. And if we are in, in being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, because Jesus gave himself for us, then we too would want to give ourselves away. And in our, in our culture and the, the individualism that we are 
surrounded with and trained in, it is hard for us to want to give ourselves away. But I think that's the lesson for us in this, in, in this lesson, is that if, are, are we really truly repenting? Um, do we really have true belief and true repentance? And if you do, it's going to be marked by the way you live your lives. And your, mark, your lives would look, your, your hearts would be marked by humility, that others would even recognize that. And then your love would be expressed by your generosity and what it is you give away. So I think for us, may the Holy Spirit continue to work in us and guide us that we would give ourselves away in greater and greater ways. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.